0: These brothers and sisters, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to our, our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation. As we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we will be looking this morning at Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 to 11. Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 to 11. Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 to 11. Please then hear with me the reading of God's inspired Word. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Thus far, is a reading of God's Word. Sadly, brothers and sisters, I think it has become, at least in our American context here, uh, easier to find self-professing Christians who do not share the characteristics of the 144,000 that we read about last week in Heavenly Zion than it is to find self-professing Christians who do. Perhaps a part of that is all that we have access to in this country to fill our time and our attention with. Right, Every day we have all of these things to choose to do. Right? Things that Christians in other countries don't even have to give a, a thought about. And in some ways, right, it is a great privilege and blessing to live in the country that we live in. But in another sense, it can also be a great detriment right, to the spiritual life of God's people. Because from our youth on, we are constantly having all of these things thrown at us looking to pull our heartstrings into the world and away from Christ. Now remember, though, what it was that characterizes the 144,000, which is the redeemed, which is the church we set. Right? It is these, we were told last week, who did not defile themselves with women, for they are virgins. And what do we say that was? It was spiritual adultery that it was talking about. So, It's talking about is these who were not compromisers. Right? They were not compromisers with the world. They did not participate in the idolatrous practices of the world. But rather, they maintained their faithful witness to Christ. Right? The anti-Christian spirit of this age is everywhere. But how many self-professing Christians continually dabble in it every day? Right? Engaging. In spiritual adultery. We also were told last week that the 144,000 in the church are those who follow the Lamb wheresoever He goes. But how many self-professing Christians have leapt off that path and instead have, have followed into the perverted speech of the world and the perverted living of this world And who now walk down paths of, of darkness. And who delight in evil. And whose eyes, or excuse me, whose heart resemble one that is crooked. And who is deceptive and living as someone who has forsaken their companion who is Christ. And who lives every day of their life as they have forgotten the covenant that is made with their God. Who stopped following the ways of the Lamb. And now, these self-professors oftentimes have a hard time finding their way back. Remember, it was these 144,000, the redeemed, those who had joined in the heavenly chorus singing to the Lamb, who we are told were the first fruits of God. Those in whose mouth there was no lie and who were blameless. If you remember, brothers and sisters, as we reflected upon that, First fruit language of the Old Testament, we said what? That the first fruits were a sacrifice that were brought to God. That were unlike all the others. It was a, it was the first fruits were set apart from all the rest. The first fruits were special. The first fruits were dedicated to God. Unlike the common harvest that everyone else picked and plucked from. And so we have to ask, does our living, does our speaking, does our thinking resemble being the first fruits of God? Does our living, thinking, speaking represent or reflect those who have been set apart for a special use by God? Or have we become like the world? Have we become like all that is common in this world? Are our lives lived as a sacrificial offering to our Lord every day of our lives? Remember as we ended last week looking at the, that glorious picture of the saints around the Lamb on Mount Zion, we said that, that what those people were described as in heaven must be something that they already, in part, are now on the earth. Right? We should not think that we can go about living our lives for ourselves now, according to our own will now, as we await Christ coming to gather us to take us somewhere, to be something that we are already not familiar with being. Right? People in this world today, self-professors, oftentimes think that my life, although I'm a Christian, is now for me to live according to my will. And when Christ comes to take us home, that time will be His. No, we need to understand that now and in glory, all time... Belongs to God. All time belongs to God. Right now, the time on earth is spent being conformed to the image of Christ until Christ returns to perfect you in His image and bring you to glory. And too many, I think, have forgotten this. Perhaps some of you here today have forgotten it. And we need to be reminded of this. Now, we're all familiar with Warning signs, aren't we? We see those a lot of places that we go. You see them on, on doors. Right? You see them on buildings. And what do they usually say? Keep out. They say, danger. They say, stay away. And what is their purpose? It is so that we would not go beyond a certain line in order to, because if you go behind, beyond that line, you're going to harm yourself, aren't you? Right? You're going to be in danger. And so these signs that are placed in these places are meant to keep you safe. And so I want us to see that as well today with, with each of the announcements of this angel. Right? With each one, right? God is warning all of what will happen to those who follow the image of the beast and who serve the beast. And He tells us this as believers as a warning in order to keep you safe. You know, oftentimes with these warning passages, Christians, we become confused and we have no idea what to do with them. One example is this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. And so we see a warning here. If your soul shrinks back, God will have no pleasure with you. And so we think to ourselves, what are we to do with this? You know, Is my soul one that is going to shrink back from the Lord's? But what I want us to see, brothers and sisters, is that these warning passages are not meant to destroy your peace. Rather, they are meant to increase it. As we recognize... That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Which is exactly why the author to the Hebrews says right after this, in chapter 10, verse 39, to the the saints, but we are not those who shrink back. We are not those who are destroyed. But those who have faith and preserve their souls. And that is what I want our text today to reinforce for us as well. As we read it this morning. This is what I want your believing soul to understand as we read this terrible vision of what will happen to all who forsake Christ and who follow not Christ but the image of the beast. And so it ought to cause us right, to, to gather together in thanksgiving to our Lord. It ought to elicit amongst the saints greater praise to our Lord, seeing that what is being said today in this warning passage is not true of us, Because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Because we have been saved by Christ. Now our approach then to our text this morning will be a simple one. We usually go with three points. And it's very nicely charted out in our text for us today. There's three angels who make three announcements. And so that's how we will look at our text this morning. And so point one will be the first angel. And so let's start looking then at the first angel's message in verses 6 and 7. Please look with me there. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea And the springs of the water. Here, immediately what we find is that in a series of many visions, a new vision has arisen. And a good indicator of that for us is what? Those three words, then I saw. He's telling us a new vision has started. And the first angel that John sees does what? It's flying overhead and he has this eternal gospel that he's going to proclaim. And who are we told He's going to proclaim it to? All those who dwell on the earth, those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And that eternal gospel then is further explained to us in the very next verse where the angel then proclaims, Fear God, give Him glory, because the hour of judgment has come. Worship Him who made heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of the water. And so, immediately from last week, we see that the entire picture has shifted, hasn't it? Right, last week we were in heaven, right on, on heavenly Mount Zion. This week we have returned now to a vision of the earth as the angel has this eternal gospel to proclaim. Although what? The gospel here presented to us is a bit different, isn't it, than how we conceive of the gospel in our own minds based on how we even present the Gospel to others, isn't it? What is? Look back at those words again. Fear God, give Him glory. The hour of judgment has come. We oftentimes think of the Gospel only in terms of salvation, don't we? And the free offer of God's grace. But here, what do we see? The Gospel is associated with judgment. Also, we often think of the Gospel as a promise. But here and in many other places, what we also see is that the Gospel is actually a command as well. And so the minister here is not so much a minister of grace as he has come with his message to be a minister of judgment. Right? His announcement proclaims the judicial side of the Gospel, not the gracious side. Now, it isn't a different Gospel. I want us to see that it's not a different Gospel But he's telling us what are the consequences to the ungodly who refuse the Gospel and don't believe in the Gospel. It's the dual nature of this Gospel that John consumed when he ate that little scroll. You remember back in chapter 10, Christ gives John a scroll to eat. And when he eats it, what happens? It's bitter to his stomach, but it's sweet to his lips and to his mouth. And what did John... What was He told to do? To go prophesy, to go proclaim this. A message of salvation and judgment to all. It is that same message that the two witnesses are given in chapter 11. If you remember in verse 10 of chapter 11, the two witnesses are laying on the ground and we're told that those who dwell on the earth rejoiced over their dead bodies. Why did they rejoice? Because the two witnesses who represent the church tormented them. How did they torment them? The words. What did the two witnesses come doing? They had the fire coming out of their mouth. Fire symbolic of what? Speaking words of judgment to those who dwell on the earth. This also, these first two verses of of chapter 14 may also be an allusion back to the Olivet Discourse and Matthew chapter 24 verse 14. Jesus there says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And in this context, what happens? It doesn't result in salvation so much, does it? As we read that context, But really, as you read there, what it tells us is that sinners are going to remain antagonistic to Christ and his church till the end. That's why he says right after, there's going to be these false prophets and these false Christs who are going to come and deceive you if they could. right? Deceive even the elect if possible. That's the, the context of that passage. And so the gospel there serves as what? It serves as a testimony. Of judgment. It is a basis of judgment against all the unbelieving world. Think also about this dual aspect of the Gospel in that glorious cross event. Right? As Jesus hangs upon the cross, you have, in Luke's account, one criminal on the right and one criminal on the left. In that one Gospel event, it meant salvation for one and judgment for the other. We see the dual aspect of the gospel. We see the dual aspect of the cross. And it was interesting. What was it that the believing criminal said to the unbelieving criminal on the cross? He said something very familiar to our text as well today. He said to the unbelieving one, Do you not fear God? Isn't that exactly the same thing that the angel is saying here? Fear God and give to Him glory? Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, speaking about the sinner, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why is that? Rather simple. The fear of God proceeds out of love of God. Where there is no love of God, there is no fear of God. Right? Love engenders fear. Think about yourselves. Think about self-love. Not the self-love of the world. But it's not wrong to have self-love. Right? We're told to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so, if you love yourself because your life is precious to you, you don't want to lose it, what does it cause you to do? To fear those things That would destroy it, right? So love engenders fear. The same is true here with God. right? Love of God engenders fear of God. Engenders reverence towards God where the believer now wants to do everything he can to please God and go to the greatest of lengths to not do anything to displease Him. Fear likewise, though, requires knowledge, doesn't it? You have to know who it is that you love and who you fear. Well, what does the angel say? Fear God. Give Him glory. He sang to them, acknowledge His majesty. Acknowledge His greatness. And only then can you worship this God. But see that all are called. All who dwell on the earth, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, all are called to bow down and give glory and to worship this God before the final judgment. Right? Because if you do not, you will be made to do so on that last day. But only then, brothers and sisters, it will not be to your salvation. Rather, it will be to your judgment. And so the angel comes and he proclaims to the impenitent, to the unbelieving world, that the Creator, the One who created heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water, is going to come as sovereign judge and all will be made to stand before Him. So now is the time to repent. Now is the time to repent. Brothers and sisters, if you hear the Word of God today, do not harden your hearts. Right? Today is the day to repent. In chapter 14, then, what I want us to see is the great divide that the, the Gospel brings. In verses 1-5, to Those who have received the Gospel and believed in Christ are presented as the redeemed in glory. Here now in verses 6-11, to we have those who follow the beast. Those who have rejected that eternal Gospel. And so we have to ask today, brothers and sisters, what side are you on? Whose side are you on? Do you know God? Do you love God? If you love God, does it cause you to fear God? And if you fear God, does it bring you to the feet of God to worship Him? We all must worship before the throne. We all must worship the Lamb before it is too late. We are not to grow unconcerned or indifferent to this message. You cannot. Now you may ask yourself, after hearing this eternal gospel this is a gospel of judgment, well, pastor, how is this good news? Right? How can this be good news? Because we all understand that the word gospel means good news. It means glad tidings. Well, I ask you in response, how can it not be good news to the believer? How can it not be good news to you? Should not the downfall of the ungodly world system along with Satan and all of his allies, according to the plan of God and for His glory, be good news to the saint? Should not the return of Christ and the judgment of the wicked and the consummation of the kingdom where the church is relieved of its every affliction where persecution of the church shall cease be good news to the body of Christ? Yeah, it should be. And so we ought to see God's judgment of the ungodly as good news to the saints. And it's an eternal gospel that we can rejoice in then. Because it fulfills God's plan. God's plan of displaying His glory in both saving and judging sinners. And it is an eternal gospel. And one in which we'll, will require of all of us in heaven eternal praises for it. It likewise is an everlasting and an eternal gospel because it is an immutable message. It is one that will not change. It is one that is timeless. And so this is the message, brothers and sisters, that the first angel brings. But we're told in verse 8 that John sees another angel. And this leads us to our second point then, which is the the second angel. Please then look with me at verse 8. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon, Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now what we need to see is that this name, Babylon the Great, is really, derives its origin really from Daniel chapter 4 verse 30. If you remember in Daniel 4, That's there where King Nebuchadnezzar is reflecting on his own glory. And it's there that he says to himself, right? Is this not great Babylon which I have built? And what happens because of that? He is judged. And what do we see going on in our text today? That now the latter day Babylon, like too, will be judged by God. Here the angel though says, to us that it is, or he speaks of it as if it has already happened, doesn't he? Fallen, fallen Babylon. Which does what for us? Right? It, it underscores the certainty of God's promise that Babylon will fall. Now this phrase fallen, fallen Babylon, is, is pulled right from Isaiah 21 verse 9. It's in Isaiah 21 verse 9 that we read this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Now, who is Babylon that we read about here in Isaiah? Right? Who is the, the Babylon of the Old Testament? Well, they were a wicked world power, weren't they? To whom God's chosen people were forced into captivity under. Right? It was Babylon who, who tempted God's people to compromise. And if they did not, they would suffer the penalty and punishment for it. We have a prime example of that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't we? They refused to bow down, worship the image, and they were cast into the fire. Now the Roman Empire, right, the context of our own passage today in the end of the first century, is doing the same thing that Babylon did to its inhabitants of old. Right? Rome is doing the same thing. They're applying that same pressure to the saints in John's day. And just as Babylon of old destroyed the first temple and cast Israel into exile. Rome has come and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. right? Which is why the Jews, after that, began to call Rome Babylon. Right? Recognizing their own history. And now applying that to the Roman Empire. Seeing that, that Rome took on the characteristics of Old Testament Babylon. Even in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter writes, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. That historically has been understood as Peter speaking about Rome. So we see that here. We see that Babylon then is a symbolic name. It's a symbolic name. And we know this because God historically has dealt with Babylon and He has told us in the Word... That Babylon will remain desolate forever. In Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 26, he says Babylon will remain a perpetual waste. So we aren't to think that in the latter times, right before the return of Christ, he's gonna resurrect Babylon. Cause that would go against his word. He tells us it never again will arise. And so believing God's word, believing his promises, understanding and recognizing who Babylon was in the Old Testament, a world power that held and oppressed God's people under its thumb. I submit to you that we ought to view Babylon now in our text as a symbol for all wicked world powers, for all wicked world systems that God's people must now live under. Right? This symbolic Babylon is descriptive of all pagan powers that oppresses God's people. Right? For the saints in the first century, that was Rome. Right? Rome was the embodiment of Babylon the Great. But many Babylon the Greats continue to exist throughout history and continue to exist today. But we ought to rejoice knowing, as the angel tells us, that when Christ returns, Babylon will be no more. Right? He will wipe it from the face of the earth. But what is true about Babylon the Great that is described to us in our text well, we're told that it's an epicenter for seduction. We read that it is she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, we need to be consistent in our interpretation. If you recall last week in verse 4, how did we interpret right, the woman who was defiled uh, through being... Or excuse me, uh, those who defiled themselves with the woman... And the church being called virgins. Right? We how did we interpret that? Not as as something literal, but rather it was symbolic, right? Of of spiritual adultery, right? For forsaking our Lord and and whoring with the ungodly world. And so we likewise need to take that same interpretation and apply it here to our text. And so this phrase is to be understood as a metaphor, really. For idolatry and spiritual blindness. For idolatry and spiritual blindness. Right? Idolatry and their sexual immorality. Spiritual blindness. What happens when you drink too much wine? And so we need to see it's a metaphor for idolatry and spiritual blindness. Right? Not only then is she guilty, Babylon the Great here, of oppressing God's people, but she seduces them to engage in soul-destroying sin. And Rome did this very thing. They made people comply to their religious and idolatrous demands. And people did so. Now, I want us to see, I'm not just saying these things to you. We can look in Scripture and find this ourselves, that that wine and that sexual morality oftentimes are symbolic for idolatry and blindness. And so I ask if you'd like to, turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 4. Look with me at Hosea chapter 4 and we'll look at verses uh, 10 to 12. Hosea chapter 4 verses 10 to 12. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because why? They have forsaken the Lord. To cherish what? Whoredom, wine, and new wine. Which do what? Take away understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has laid them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. You see, that's exactly what's being described here in our text. right? The idolatry of these people has taken away their understanding. And the sinner becomes overtaken by their sin and they fall into this drunken stupor becoming intoxicated by the world. And as that intoxication of the world increases, they become more and more blind to the reality of what is happening around them. And why? Why do people go along with this? I submit to you to maintain social and economic standing in the world. To maintain social and economic standing in the world. In in Rome in the first century, if you wanted to maintain a social and economic standing, if you wanted a good life, you had to go along with the idolatry of the land. You had to go along with it. And so they drank to comply with the demands of Rome in order that they might have prosperity in the land. And you say, "Well, where do you get that from?" Well, look at Revelation chapter 18 with me. Revelation chapter 18, and we'll we see these used together. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immor- excuse me immorality with her. And here it is. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So here we see drinking wine, sexual morality, and also economic good standing all here combined together. Drop down to verse nine. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and what? And lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. And so the, the promise of prosperity removed all barriers for these people to resist. To resist the idolatry that they are being told to drink up. The idea of prosperity was intoxicating to the people. And so they drank of the wine of Babylon. Right? Rome was guilty of leading people to apostasy. By demanding allegiance to Caesar. right, Saying Caesar is Lord. They were guilty of leading them into idolatry by worshipping the beast. And it is no different today, is it? You can be two bakers who bake cakes. And because you refuse to bake the cake for two people who come into your shop who happen to be homosexual and who want you to bake a a wedding cake for them and you refuse based on your conscience and because of your faith, what can happen to those kind of people in our land even today? Your economic freedom can be snatched from you in a second. Your ability to earn a living can be taken from you immediately. This is why so many comply with the ungodly governments of this world and with the wicked systems and institutions that we have. They comply. They give in. Why? Because to not do so means you will not have financial prosperity. You will not, generally speaking, be good in in a good economic place. And so people are willing to, to drink up idolatry to, to compromise themselves with the world, to become blinded and blinded all the more for a good lifestyle and, and good living. Right? They're willing to sell their soul for a good name on earth, for earthly riches, for earthly goods. And so we as believers are to rejoice with the second angel knowing that Babylon will fall. We ought to rejoice with the second angel seeing that everything that stands opposed to God will be brought down. Right? We ought to rejoice because Babylon the Great today seduces our children. Right? Babylon the Great today tries to seduce every one of us here. Babylon the Great has seduced our family members and our friends. It has caused them to be intoxicated with the world and to fall into a, a drunken stupor. To not see the reality of their life and what will become of them. And so we ought to rejoice with this second angel. And in looking at this, brothers and sisters, we have to ask, as we've seen Zion last week, as we see Babylon this week, we have to ask ourselves, which do we belong? Right? Which do I live in? Which do I find more enjoyment in? And for those who answer Babylon and who have been living in Babylon, see what will become of Babylon. And see what becomes of every single person who stays in Babylon. And so all of us, it is a call to all of us to repent, to return to the Lord, to stop serving creature and start worshiping Creator. See only, brothers and sisters, that it is Christ and Christ alone who can wash the filthy stench of Babylon from your garments. But also know that when He does, you'll be cleansed from all sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as those who have been washed, who have been justified, who have been sanctified, Babylon's ways then see are no longer to be our ways. Right? Self-indulgence and greed are not things that are to characterize the believer, but rather living for Christ does. Being those who have the indwelling spirit living inside of us now. Having been given eyes to see, we see the danger of Babylon and we forsake her and we stay far away from her. This leads us then to our third and our final point, which is the third angel. Please look with me then at verses 9 to 11, please. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of this torment goes up forever and ever And they have no rest day and night, these worshippers of the beast and of its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. See the terrible end of the ungodly. See what will happen to all those who rebel against God and deny Jesus Christ the Savior. Right now, brothers and sisters, people make fun of hell, don't they? Maybe some of you here today do. Maybe we listen to music or watch TV shows or movies that make light of it. Right? There are many people who confess that they want to go there. But that is because they are under the false assumption that hell will only be an extension of the earth. They think hell will be a place where they and all their friends will go and continue to have this one big great party together, but far be that from the truth. What are we told here in our text? For we see that in hell, what? They will drink the wrath of God. Right now, the ungodly experience God's common grace. God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And hell... There will be no common grace. God's cup will be undiluted. Right, we're told in verse 10, it will come in full strength. Right, in hell, God's wrath will be judgment with no mercy. No mercy at all. It will be a torment that afflicts the sinner both inwardly as well as outwardly. Right, it will afflict his soul. As every moment of his, of his life, he will continue to remember His hopeless condition and realize that He will never escape it. And like with psychological torment, doesn't it oftentimes affect our bodies? Well, so too when the sinner, body and soul are reunited and cast into hell, so too that torment inwardly will affect their body outwardly as well, beyond all comprehension. Now, right now, the the nations willingly Drink the cup of Babylon the great, which though only is a temporary cup, let us see that in hell all will drink the cup of God's wrath. But they will not drink it voluntarily. They will be made to do so. And it will not be a temporary cup of wrath, but an eternal one. It is a never-ending, overflowing, super-abundant cup. Right? We are told that they are to drink it day and night, which signifies that to us, that it is relentless. Right? There is no rest for the ungodly in hell, we are told. Brothers and sisters, they will wish for the cup to run dry, but it never will. It never will. Fire, as we've said multiple times, is a symbol of judgment. It's symbolic for judgment. Here, too, we need to see that same thing. We are not to conceive of hell as a place where there's just a bunch of fire and flames everywhere. But in saying that, what I also want everyone here to understand is we are not lessening the torment of hell by saying that. Realizing this, throughout the book of Revelation, what have we learned? That through the symbolic language that we read, it can never fully capture what is conveyed to us in that symbolic language, can it? Which means what to us then? That the symbol of fire and sulfur in hell is not even close to comprehending the torment that the sinner will suffer. Right? Hell will be far great, far more worse than fire and sulfur. The sinner in hell is going to hope that it would only be fire and sulfur, but it will be far beyond that in torment. John Calvin affirms this very thing, saying this, Now because no description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked, their torments and tortures are figuratively expressed to us by physical things. Same thing I said here. We only can convey something through words. But what happens when our words cannot communicate the depths of the reality of hell? That is what we are dealing with. When we say that it is a place of fire and sulfur, it is symbolic language used to describe how absolutely frightening and terrible hell will be. But I want us all to also understand, though, Never let anyone tell you that hell will be a place of annihilation either. Hell will not be a place of annihilation. Do you know why that is? Because annihilation will be a mercy that God will not grant to the sinner. He will not grant that mercy to the sinner. And in fact, what are we told in our text? that What are they going to suffer? Torment. Torment. Now there's many reasons why we are not to understand this as annihilation, but conscious torment. And one of the overwhelming reasons is that the word here, the Greek word for torment, is never used in the New Testament or the book of Revelation to speak about personal annihilation of existence. Every time and without exception in the book of Revelation, the word for torment always describes conscious torment. I don't have time to go through all of the examples, but if you have a pen and paper, chapter 9, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 2. Chapter 18, verses 7 and 10 and 15. Chapter 20, verse 10. All of these places describe conscious torment. But brothers and sisters, this is because this is the only penalty worthy of those who would sin and rebel against an infinite, holy and perfect God. Right? An infinite penalty for sin. This is the only just penalty. Also understand, brothers and sisters, that everything that the sinner loves in hell will be gone. Not one flower will bloom. The sun will not set upon them. A breeze will not go through their hair. Everything they love will be gone. They will find no fulfillment. They will find no joy. They will find no independence there. Hell will be a place of isolation and unhappiness and desolation. And it will be grief-filled. What poverty then those in hell will suffer. It will also be a place, brothers and sisters, that, that will surprise those there. Because as they are cast into the lake of fire, they will learn something new that they did not know before. Right? Because sinners think that in going to hell, they will escape the presence of God, don't they? But they won't. Even in our text, it tells us here, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10b, What do we read? And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And what? In the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Hell will not be a place that the unbeliever can go to escape the presence of God. God rules over hell. right? He who has power and authority to cast both body and soul there certainly reigns over it, doesn't He? And He will be there. But He will not be there in love. Right? His presence will not be there in mercy. It will not be there in grace. It will be there in anger. And it will be there in wrath. And it will always be there in holy fury against those who have sinned against Him and rejected His Son. Brothers and sisters, it's a fearful thing for me even to stand up before you today and describe It is a terrible thing for us even to imagine. And sadly though, brothers and sisters, there are many self-professing Christians who are embarrassed by this teaching today. They feel shame over these words. So much so that they'll tell people, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Bible. But not that part about hell. Brothers and sisters, we should not feel shame over the doctrine of hell. We should not be embarrassed about the doctrine of hell because one thing is clear, hell exists for the glory of God. And in that we should rejoice. Because apart from hell, you would not see certain characteristics of the glory of God otherwise. And so we ought to rejoice that His glory is manifested even in the judgment of sinners. So as we close, brothers and sisters, I ask you, even today, to think about. Think about Zion. Think about Babylon. Think about heaven. Think about hell. And ask yourselves, to which do I wish to belong? I know for the saints, an earthly life here is not always easy. It can be very difficult. Having to wake up every morning knowing that you are going to spiritual battle with the devil. That he is throwing darts and arrows your way and you are constantly having to dodge and to block them. When it could be so much easier for you to compromise. Wouldn't it be sometimes? But no, brothers and sisters, that difficulty is only but temporary. Right now, it appears that the ungodly are at rest. But while we are on earth, and while we are experiencing this difficulty, let us fixate our eyes upon the eternal rest, knowing that when Christ comes again, we will be the ones at rest, and they will never rest again. What rest do you want, then I ask? What rest do you want? Do you want a temporal rest that comes about through compromising with the world? Or do you want that eternal rest that remains for those who have confessed Christ, who live obediently to Christ, and who bear faithful witness to Him, refusing to compromise with this ungodly world? Right. This world in hell will drink the cup of God's wrath. But for all of you who believe in the Son, take heart in knowing this: that Christ on the cross drank the cup of wrath for you, so that you don't have to drink of it in hell. Right? He drank of the cup, and he drank of it completely, so that you would not have to suffer the torments of hell. He did that as your substitute and as your savior. And after finishing that great work on your behalf, what did He do? Hebrews 4 tells us He entered that rest. And one day He is coming to gather His people and to bring us to that rest with Him. But until that day, brothers and sisters, He offers to us a spiritual rest. Right? A spiritual rest to all of those who flock to Him in faith. Saying this as an invitation. Come to Me. Come to Jesus, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest in your souls. Brothers and sisters, may we find rest from the flesh, from the world, and from the devil, in the only place that will ever be found jesus christ our lord let us pray heavenly father we thank you for your word for it is true even though sometimes it may be difficult as we read and study it we ask lord that you would cause us to rejoice not in the pain or in the suffering that others will endure but that You would cause us to rejoice in the message, for we know that it will occur according to Your plan and for Your glory. Yet also, Lord, knowing this truth, may it stir us up to be witnesses for Christ in the world, not wanting to see one of our neighbors depart to the lake of fire. Please, Father, then we ask this day that You would make this message a reality to our hearts, That You would aliven our souls and awaken us out of our slumber. That You would cause us to warn others about the eternal gospel, which is a judgment to the world. So, Father, we come before You this day, praying all these things in Christ's name. Amen.